0: Hi, I'm Emily Williams, and this is Understand South Carolina, a podcast from The Post and Courier. We're bringing you an episode today that's a little different. It's an interview with Cecil Williams. If you don't recognize that name, look up photos of the Orangeburg Massacre, the Charleston Hospital workers' strike, the petitioners in the Briggs v. Elliott case, or really any major event of the civil rights era that happened in South Carolina and you will see his byline on those photos. From his very early teens, Cecil Williams had a front row seat to South Carolina's civil rights history. And since these events lacked coverage at the time, he was sometimes the only person there with a camera documenting history. I met Cecil Williams in 2019 when he was in the process of setting up his own museum in Orangeburg, South Carolina. And when I say set up a museum, I really mean that. In his early 80s, he decided to open up a civil rights museum in a building next to his home, a building, by the way, that he had designed himself years back, and he did it almost single-handedly, down to framing the photos and installing the flooring. He'd been frustrated after pushing for decades to get a museum like that built, and eventually decided that if he was going to see it get done, he probably had to do it himself. The museum opened later that year, with his photos from the civil rights era filling the walls. I spoke with Cecil Williams earlier this month about documenting those events in real time and why he says South Carolina's freedom fighters still haven't been given their due in the history books.
1: My name is Cecil J. Williams. I am a resident of Orangeburg, South Carolina. I have lived here my entire life. Most of my life, my career has been in the field of photography. Approximately 17 months ago, realizing that the state of South Carolina was the only state in the deep South that did not have a civil rights museum, I decided that it was time for someone to do it.
0: I wanted to start out by asking you about a specific photo, and that's One that you took of Thurgood Marshall, who, of course, would go on to become the first African-American U.S. Supreme Court justice. But at the time of this photo, he was an attorney getting off a train in Charleston, preparing for arguments in the Briggs versus Elliott case. So first, can you tell me how old you were when you took that photo and how you came to be there doing that coverage?
1: Well, I began photography at nine years old. I had my first camera, And by 12, uh, I was doing quite well in photography. In fact, I did my first waiting for which I charged $35. But uh, the picture of Thurgood Marshall was taken when I was about 12 or 13. And it was the first camera that I had a flash unit on which I could take pictures in the evening. But in the mind of a 13-year-old, all I could comprehend from the gentleman that took me uh, to Charleston to photograph him, which was the president of the Orangeburg chapter of the NAACP, Squire Morgan, all I could comprehend was that he told me that this big lawyer was coming from New York to Charleston to engage in what was known as the Briggs versus Elliott trial, which took place. So we went to the train station where he arrived, and, I took one picture, one flash, one click, and captured Thurgood Marshall coming off the train. I became a very close associate and friend of the people in Clarendon County in Somerton, South Carolina, when they had filed this case called Briggs v. Elliott. The Briggs v. Elliott case was the first case in history that attacked segregation in public education. My mother was a school teacher and she taught with Reverend J.A. Delaney. So that's another one of my connections to Clarendon County. And then my other connection to Clarendon County was, of course, through one of my mentors, E.C. Jones of Sumter, South Carolina, who was really the person employed by Reverend Delane and the NAACP to photograph the petitioners in Clarendon County. So that's how I, I got started as a civil rights photographer.
0: Let's go back a little bit to when you said you got your first camera and took your first photographs. What were you photographing, or who were you photographing?
1: Yes, at nine years old, it was my brother's camera, Kodak Baby Brownie. My mother had bought the camera from Sayers Roebuck at the time for $2.50. She had ordered it from the catalog, and it was in the household. And my brother used it. But um, when he grew to liking music, he gave me the Kodak Brownie, And uh, because I like to sketch, I thought that the camera uh, provided me another outlet for my creativity. So I really took a liking to it. And the first subjects I took were, of course, the folks in my household. On Sundays, I would go to Edisto Gardens here in Orangebury, where people on those afternoons would get dressed or after church, and I would take them in their best clothes, and I would charge them $1. So I figured out a way to of course make money and became an entrepreneur about nine or 10 years old as well. But I didn't start my first darkroom until I was about 11 or 12 years old. And then my parents, when my brother left the household to pursue his interest in music, that left an empty room in the house. And they allowed me to take a blanket and put over the doorway and that became my darkroom.
0: You explained how you kind of got your start as a civil rights photographer. But I'm wondering, did you realize that right away, that that's what you were doing? Like You said you didn't necessarily know at the time when you took that photo of Thurgood Marshall who he would go on to become after that. But at what point did you realize that that's what you were doing, photographing what would become historic times and historic people?
1: One year or two after I photographed Thurgood Marshall, The people in Clarendon County, because of filing that lawsuit, most of them had lost their jobs and had to flee Somerton, South Carolina, which, by the way, is 30 miles from where I live here in Orangeburg. As a result, their movement and the momentum of what they were doing regarding civil rights and trying to go against the challenges and barriers of that day, that movement spread to Orangeburg. When Thurgood Marshall wins the Supreme Court ruling, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, the ruling that declared that uh, segregated schools are unconstitutional, one of the first place he comes is back to Orangeburg again, and Clarendon County and Columbia and Charleston. He spoke at Claflin University, which is my alma mater. But at that time, you know, 1954, I was a high school student. So I photographed him again at Claflin University. Right after Thurgood Marshall speaks at Claflin, parents in Orangeburg wanted to test the Supreme Court ruling. So they filed to a petition against Orangeburg School District 5 for Black children to go to the public schools. As soon as they did that, the parents then faced retaliation from Orangeburg citizens and, and merchants. So in order to counter that, we formed a boycott. So Jet magazine discovers that we are using a very unique technique, the technique of boycott, which is a new strategy fighting against racism, discrimination. So they come to Orangeburg. And because this is such an interesting story, they appoint me as an official correspondent for Jet magazine at 14 years old, out of the 25 other correspondents they had on their payroll at the time. I was the youngest correspondent for Jet Magazine in their history. They had other correspondents like myself in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. And they needed us on the ground taking pictures for them exclusively because the mainstream press and media outlets often would not print and publish news of African-American students and the unrest going on insofar as bringing down the barriers existing in that state. We had to have our own news release. So that's why I was very important to JET, to give them direct photographs of where things were happening here in South Carolina. I worked for JET magazine for nearly 20 years, all during the civil rights movement period. Uh, The last assignment, major assignment I did for JET, was what is called the Charleston Hospital Workers Strike of 1969. Here was a situation where the medical university uh, nurses and who were African-American were only being paid half as much as white nurses doing the same job. And so the people in Charleston started marching and demonstrating to really bring attention to this oversight. And they had to engage in a boycott and marching and demonstrating for about 105 days. Before the state of South Carolina and the governor really then stepped up to the plate and paid them what they would do.
0: Your museum has the theme of these South Carolina events that changed American history. And one of those is the Orangeburg Massacre. And that's, of course, something that you were covering there in your hometown. Can you describe more that experience personally for you?
1: That happened in 1968. At this time, I have finished college and I'm out working. But I am the yearbook photographer for South Carolina State and Claflin University. All the events leading and anything the students did, which was a student activity, I covered it for them. On February the 6th, when we were at the bowling alley, someone accidentally broke a window at the bowling alley, which we were trying to gain entrance to. Here was a time in history when people of color were not even allowed to bowl. There were some pockets of resistance to the laws that really should have been and prevailed to allow people of color to bowl or eat in restaurants or go anyplace else. But in Orangebury, it was this pocket of resistance, this bowling alley called the Orangebury All Star Bowling Lanes. And so on February the 6th, after a window was accidentally broken, I saw police authorities and law enforcement reaching for their weapons. And as they did that, I ran away too. Even though my car was parked across the street from the alley, I ran back towards the campus. So two days later after the incident, the students are being contained on the state college campus, Claflin students, state students, Wilkinson High School students, and people from the city of Orangeburg. And about 9.30 that evening, about 45 minutes after I left the campus myself, but could not get on, the uh, South Carolina law enforcement director ordered 22 highway patrolmen to load their weapons, and they did that, but only nine obeyed Those nine highway patrolmen started marching on the students and fired for around nine or 10 seconds into a crowd of 150 students injuring about 28 and killing three. And that incident became known as the Orangeburg Massacre. Almost all of the students who were shot were shot in their backs as if they were running away. They could not believe that police authorities would actually open fire on them, especially when they had no weapons. It was almost as if, as at that time, the law enforcement uh, person, Pete Strom, grew tired of dealing with the situation and he just ordered his men to load their their weapons. So the highway patrolman loaded their shotguns with double art shotgun shells. By the way, they could have used rubber bullets, they could have issued a order for them to, for, you know, to, to, to stop congregating and, and don't build this bonfire or just ask them to, to, you know, to, to cease doing what they were doing. Instead, they just loaded their weapons at that particular time, and marched on the students on the state college campus. A lot of people assume that since we were trying to gain interest to a bowling alley, that the Orangeburg massacre occurred right at the bowling alley itself. No, indeed, it started at the bowling alley. And the reason was trying to, of course, gain interest. And so we would be admitted to being able to bowl at the bowling alley and each eat at the lunch counter or whatever, we had the money to do that. But it happened on the state college campus, right on the front of the campus, which comes out to Highway 601 and what's called Magnolia Street in Orangeburg. This was actually where the incident occurred. Things were such so hectic that night that the entire telephone system of Orangeburg broke down. You could not make calls in or out because everyone was on the phone talking about what was going on. I tried myself desperately to get back on the campus right before the firing started, but I was unable to, so I went on home myself. At about seven o'clock the next morning, I got in my car and went back on the campus and it looked like a real eerie battleground had taken place on the grounds at State College where this incident had occurred. And I looked on the ground and I saw Debris and paper and other kinds of artifacts. And also, I started picking up shotgun shells that had come from the highway patrolman's rifles. And I started picking them up and putting into my pockets as well. I later, on doing the week, took a picture of a student holding the shells in their hands. That picture went to Newsweek and Time Magazine. And then the Federal Bureau investigation discovered that I had the shells. They came and confiscated some of the shells from me, and I kept the remainder of the shells. Those shells are today in my museum here in Orangeburg. The Orangeburg massacre it does not appear in all history books, and the sacrifices made by the students and the people of Orangeburg, as it is with the people of Clarendon County, and many of the events that happened in South Carolina, the history books don't portray those. When I go into a classroom or wherever I'm to make a presentation, I often ask the crowd, "Who or where a when do they believe the civil rights movement began, and who was responsible?" And almost all of them will raise their hand and say, "The Reverend Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks." And that simply is not true. They were great heroes in their own right, and nothing should be taken away from them. But very simply, they did not start the American Civil Rights Movement. If there was a time and a place for the Civil Rights Movement of America to begin, it began in Clarendon County in around 1949 with the Briggs case, because the Briggs case, with four other cases joining it, becomes known as Brown versus Board of Education. And that was the Supreme Court ruling that began all changes to happen relative to what African Americans can do in this country. The Brown decision. All the barriers started coming down, not as fast as we would have liked, but that was the starting point. Historians should ask, where did Brown come from? And Brown comes from Briggs versus Elliott, the first case to attack segregation. So when the Reverend Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks And the brave acts of the people of Montgomery, Alabama, happened on December 1st, 1955. We have five years of history before here in South Carolina, but we don't get credit for it.
0: You mentioned that audiences or classes that you speak to will often mention people like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King. Who are some of the people in South Carolina The people that you had the chance to meet and to photograph whose names are not as well known?
1: Well, in addition to uh, the people in Clarence County, there are people who I will name that you would have never heard of, because again, they just have not made the history books. But uh, how many people know, for example, that Sarah Mae Fleming of Eastover, South Carolina, two years before Rosa Parks at her act of bravery in sitting down in Montgomery, Alabama. Two years before that, Sarah Mae Fleming did the same thing in Columbia, South Carolina. And in fact, in the uh, trial brought up in Alabama, this South Carolina case is cited, but historians just merely prefer in some kind of way to just not look at South Carolina's long history in civil rights. Matthew Perry, a uh, phenomenal attorney, was the person in South Carolina, from a legal standpoint, who got thousands of students out of jail. These are some of my heroes, and I pay tribute to them in my museum. In the museum, there are 35 exhibits, and those exhibits really go through about 12 themes. And these are the events that really changed America. So so much of South Carolina history, again, is overlooked and not taken in consideration.
0: Why do you think that is? You've explained how some of these events really had predecessors in South Carolina in terms of that that timeline. So why do you think some of South Carolina's civil rights history has been more forgotten?
1: With the absence of media and also media that ignores African-American achievements and African-American activities, that's the main reason why the media did not pick it up, because the newspapers, the radio stations, simply did not report African-American activities. And especially when we're trying to overthrow and, and bring about constitutional change. We're trying to overthrow the constitution of the state of South Carolina, which discriminates against African-Americans and also the United States constitution. We're trying to change that so that everyone can be treated equal. Everyone will same, have the same opportunity. The other thing was that Montgomery, Alabama happens in a larger environment. There was an emerging television station in Montgomery, Alabama. You see, if we go back to uh, 1955, television is just gaining the importance that it does in the media, role of the media in spreading information. So there was an affiliate television network emerging in Montgomery. So when Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks Uh, the people of Montgomery engaged in the Montgomery bus boycott, then all of America gets to hear it about. But in the backwoods, and the small cities of South Carolina, where the news media is not reporting, then that doesn't reach uh, the newspapers and publications as well. So in my opinion, that's why our news and the things that we did so much earlier are not often reported.
0: When you look up these major civil rights events in South Carolina and you see photos, they are most of the time, your photos. And I'm wondering how many other people were doing what you were doing at the time? How many people were alongside you, also with a camera, taking photos?
1: In the very early years, actually I was the only camera person on the scene. And you see, I was also marching and demonstrating along with the students. And the law enforcement didn't see me indifferent from others It it was just that I was a marcher and a demonstrator that happened to have a camera. Oftentimes, I believe that they were ashamed of what they were doing because they would take my camera away from me, take the film out and destroy uh, what the pictures I had taken. So I lost a lot of film like that. But being a journalist at a very early age, 14 years old, probably was the most inspiring thing to me that I, working as a high school student for a national publication, that was overwhelming and that really encouraged me to really go out and try and photograph events. However, due to my age, most of the civil rights movement activities I covered was right here in South Carolina, which for a long while I wanted to regret because I too was brainwashed by so many other events all over the United States, thinking that they had a degree of more importance wherein reality. I had come of age at the time, really, to catch the most important part of a movement in America that brought about the freedom, justice, and equality in place, African Americans one step closer to living in an America uh, with the democracy that is promised to all. So I'm so grateful that I came of age during this period of time, a very young age, in fact, in order to capture this history so that we now can look back and hopefully pay tribute to the people whose shoulders we stand on.
0: You mentioned those instances where law enforcement would take your film, uh, maybe not wanting people to see the photos that you had taken. And I'm wondering, especially given what we've seen in the last year, George Floyd, of course, being the first example that comes to mind, about the continued importance of having visual evidence having having photos of these
1: things then and now the images were the tipping point you see images were the holy grail of evidence of something happening for generations as african-americans were attacked by law enforcement people or treated unfairly on the highways of america or on the streets of america in demonstrate or in the workplace again a lot of times it was our word against theirs it's such a important tool to be able to be able to capture something and now with a cell phone and that captured george orbit imagine if that was it was just described and not caught with a, a camera it would not have had the impact that incident had a worldwide impact. It caused unrest all over because uh, the big difference between the demonstrations and marching and so forth of this past summer in, 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 in 2020. And the difference going back when we were marching and protesting then is that there were only around 50 or 20% whites joining blacks. today. It was very evident that 40 or 50 percent of the students out there, the people out there, were white. So this is this is really evidence that we have more people now uh, realizing that it's wrong to treat people uh, indifferently because of their race or their color.
0: I know that because of COVID, your museum is mostly closed right now, but. What are some other ways that people can learn more about it and interact with what you've put together?
1: We are now able to offer a free online tour. Persons wanting to tour the museum can go through each and every room in the entire museum and look at all the exhibits at no charge, simply by going to my website, CecilWingsMuseum.com. And then with your mouse, you can navigate throughout each and every room and read the information.
0: I know you've taken thousands of images, I know there are hundreds hanging on the walls of just the museum, but do you have one in particular that maybe you could share with us that continues to stay with you after all these years?
1: There's still a picture of a little boy holding his mother's hand at a civil rights event. It is one of my favorite photographs. So this was a photograph taken in about 1960, during a civil rights rally in Columbia, South Carolina. By the way, even today, he remains nameless. I never knew, I never took his name down when I took the photograph. He would be um, almost in retirement age now if he were to uh, come forward and say, hey, I'm that little boy. Unfortunately, I didn't always uh, take the uh, information about photographs I was taking. I would just take, 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 but not identify, identify.
0: Why that photo?
1: Well, that photograph is powerful. Uh, it's powerful to me and it's meaningful for me because, um, in a way, it is iconic. Because since the plight for African Americans in this country has been one of looking up towards freedom and justice and, and looking towards our constitution to really, so we can maintain and establish our rights as citizens in this country, uh, looking up, and it seems to be really uh, coincide with the with the struggle to overcome injustices. So him holding his mother's hand and looking up, I think that picture has that, the power to really convey that kind of thought. The other thing is that it it was a magical moment. The minute I was about to snap that picture, this little boy was surrounded by adults. But the minute I got ready to take that picture as if it was magic, a little ray of light came out of a cloud and lit his face. So again, it was really a divine moment in time that I captured that little, that picture, of that little boy.
0: To learn more about the Cecil Williams Museum and to do a virtual tour, you can visit CecilWilliams.com. In-person visits can be scheduled, but are limited because of COVID-19 precautions. For Post and Courier coverage celebrating Black History Month, visit postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Understand South Carolina will be back for our regular weekly episode next week and keep your eye out for a bonus episode too. If you don't want to miss a show, sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's free and you'll be the first to know when new episodes are posted. I'll leave the link to that sign up in today's show notes. If you have comments or suggestions for this show, I would love to hear them. Email us at understandsc at postincourier.com or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandSC at com or on Twitter at understandSC. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com.
1: We'll see y'all next week.